I love it. Good morning. Uh-uh, that's mm-mm. Good morning. All right. I know. So I, I did watch the Mariners game this last season. Hey, they rocked it. So give it up. They rocked it. It was an awesome season. There is strong hope for next season for the Mariners, and that comes a lot from a Cardinals fan. So I say salute. You all will make it next season. I, I can see it. Strong team. Awesome. That was for you, Pastor Jay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so for announcements today, uh, Jen's not here. I've got all the goodies, so hang in there. So tonight, we have Ignite. It is, yes, be excited. This is where Brookview gets a chance to talk about what are we dreaming about? Where do we believe God is calling us to dive deeper in, not just uh, with ourselves, but also with community? Um, and what does that global footprint look like for us? And you'll get a chance to see where are we, uh, where are we financially as well. And so we also would like to make sure for those that are coming tonight that have been to Ignite or haven't been to Ignite, we want to hear from you. We'd like to hear, like, what, what is meaningful for you, um, and why uh, did you decide to come to Ignite? So I'm not trying to scare you. So for those that are online, just come tonight. 6 p.m. is when the meeting starts, but come for dinner at 5. We'll have some tacos. The kids will have a little bit of child care, but it comes in a movie and uh, popcorn. Uh, so bring them in their PJs, if you like, uh, so that they can get settled in. And so... If in Taco Bar, um, that'll begin at 5 to 5.45. So if you come at 5.45, you might get a taco shell or some nachos. <laughs> so just saying, if you want a little more substance, come at 5. And I'm telling myself 4.45 because I'm always late. So just make sure if you want to eat, come at 5. And that'll be just right downstairs. We'll have fellowship together um, and then be ready to come inside and talk more about Ignite. And so next, we want to talk about Cedar Way and Vision House. That'll be our next one for this Tuesday. So we see lots of wonderful items in the foyer. Um, I think that's what we call it, the hallway out there. Um, this, third, this Tuesday, we'll actually be doing some deliveries for Cedarway and Vision House. So if you're interested in getting on the list, like you didn't hear anything about it, we would love to make sure that the people that send out the emails and text message reminders, uh, if you put on your Connect card uh, the uh, Vision House or um, actually just Vision or Cedarway, you can click the box. Or if you text to the number 425 406-3660, sorry, it wasn't in my notes, the word helping, not helping, but helping, uh, that's, that will let you get into the loop of what's happening uh, for Cedarway and Vision House. And so if you have things and you are online and you forgot you have tonight, come to Ignite, bring your goodies in, or you have until Tuesday um, that morning to bring... Um, things into the bin here on the side of the church, or if the church is open to bring it into uh, the Fourier area. 
And so last but not least, we have the online um, connect card. And so for this, if you want to hear more information about Brookview or if you have comments uh, that you want to leave some feedback or even prayer requests, um, whether they're confidential or you want to celebrate and have prayer of thanksgiving, please, please, please fill out your connect card. We love to hear from all of you, especially online as well. Um, and that is the only time you need to bring your phone out for church, unless you got your Bible app. Just saying. Mariners aren't on, so you can leave that. Just turn, put on the do not disturb. <laughs> that's your announcements for this week, and that's what we have. So hold on. It'll be a great service today. Guys, that was a treat. Jojo, you brought it. You just brought it. And I needed that. I needed some energy. Because I don't know about any of you. I was at that game last night. I don't know. I know Jane was there because she sat two rows behind me, uh, which was awesome. Was anybody else at the game? Y yep. Okay. Well, hey, let, me, let me fill you in on the experience a little bit. The um, <clears throat> games are supposed to go how many innings? Nine. So the food, it shuts down at the seventh inning, right? We had our lunch at 1230 or whatever. And then, it, you know, it, it, I don't know, four o'clock or so was the last you could get food. And we, we didn't get to our, even to our car until like 815. Jen was getting hangry. <laughs> I was like, babe, this is... We can do this. And then, so then, like, around 7.15 and maybe the 17th inning or so, the kid next to me, I don't know what happened, but somehow he got some pizza. He must have had it <laughs> stored away somewhere. And so you know how that sort of wafts up and it, it sort of activates? And so I'm looking at this kid, and I'm like, he's maybe 11. And I'm like, I could take him. <laughs> I could take him. So... I, I've got, I'm like, I haven't eaten right. I'm, I, my adrenaline is all up. I'm like, I've got like an adrenaline hangover. So if I pass out in the middle of the sermon, just somebody come up. I know we've got some CPR skills in here and you guys can revive me. Also, you should always know we have grief counseling available. So... Well, so, okay, so we started this series last week called Garden City with the idea that God, God created Eden, but what the picture that we see at the end of the Bible is, is not just a return to the garden, but it's actually a city in Revelation. The idea is that God created this garden, but it wasn't intended to stay a garden. It was intended to move forward, to be moved into something even more. And so um, I mentioned last week also that it is uh, it's striking to me how many Disney movies have the same basic plot line. Like a child or a person from obscurity ends up, something happens and they end up discovering or, or becoming royalty. 
You guys, you guys, like Cinderella, Aladdin, Snow White, Lion King. Anybody, any other examples? What? Do you guys watch Disney movies? <laughs> okay, so, uh, so I had another example, and it's not, what? Mulan. Mulan. Thank you. So, so we're, we're at lunch last week after church, and I was with Kate and Keller and Jen, and we're talking, and, and I was like, you guys, I mean, it's, it's not just Disney movies, right? Like, like Avatar. Avatar follows the same basic storyline, um, but I didn't want to use it as an example in church because we have all these, like, naysayers, and I thought there was going to be pushback, and people would be like, like, no, it doesn't fit the plot line. Nobody's actually royalty in that movie. And then you would just get stuck on that like a couple of minutes into the sermon and just miss everything else. But I just want to tell you guys, I think it does totally fit the script. And um, I didn't want to take all the time last week to explain how it fits the script, so I just left it out. But I can't help it. <laughs> um, for those of you who've been around a long time, you know that when that movie first came out, I actually preached a sermon on it. Uh, Rebecca, first sermon, first service at Brookview ever. Uh, so this is worth 30 seconds of thoughts. <laughs> you know, like the sequel's coming out in December and everything. So, so you guys, it totally follows the theme. You think about it. There is a wounded soldier who's paraplegic, and he is a nobody, but he gets to live life in this new, amazingly blue alien body, and he eventually fights with this new group of, of people and, and for the survival of their planet and, he, he, and their freedom, their community, their way of life. And he leads them and then eventually he dies. But what dies is the human form and he just takes on this body permanently. And some of you are like, yeah. <laughs> Still not royalty. It's not a king or a prince or anything. I just want to say, shut up. So the story, like, my point is, this storyline sells. It sells. Even if the people are blue, it sells. So why is it that human beings are so fascinated with these kinds of stories? And here's what I would say. I, I would argue that it taps into this inescapable part of our humanity because every single one of us wants to matter. We, we all want to live a life of meaning and significance. And my guess is that some of you guys, you feel that in your bones. Like there's an idea that you have or, or a crazy dream or an unrealistic desire or a haunting sense deep inside of you that, that you were made for something. And it just keeps coming up in you, bubbling up in you, and it will not go away no matter how much you try to shove it down. Why is that? Well, could it be that God has placed that inside of each one of us? So last week we began with the most basic picture of what it is to be human. And it comes to us on the first page of the Bible in Genesis 1. So let me reread this. Genesis 1, starting with verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. 
rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Sometimes like scholars, Bible scholars and theologians will refer to this as the cultural mandate because the command is to go make culture, which is, is fascinating. Adam and Eve are commanded, like they're mandated to go make culture. Now, at face value, like be fruitful and increase in number, it just means make babies, right? So get married, grow a family, have sex, make babies, multiply. But when you think about it, isn't that kind of an odd thing for God to have to command? Why would God have to command people to have sex? Like, People kind of figure out how to do this, I think. I mean, don't you think that this would have happened if God hadn't commanded anything? I mean, you think about, like, this is the ancient world, you guys. There's no birth control, and there's no Netflix. What the heck else are you going to do after it gets dark? I'm pretty sure babies would have come along anyway, right? I don't think God needed to command it. So what is God up to here? Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. Well, apparently, one family isn't enough for what God had in mind. God wants more for Adam and Eve, and he wants more for humanity than just like an ancient version of this was family Robinson. He wants their family to grow and develop and expand, and he wants this little family to become a civilization. He wants human beings to make babies, yes, but he also wants them to make neighborhoods and towns and cities and churches, and community centers, and schools, and all of this stuff falls under the banner of be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth. Which leads to the second part of their job description, which is subdue it. Meaning, harness the raw, uncut potential of earth itself. Make something of the world that you've been dropped into. You have a forest, do something with it. You have a river, make it work for you. You have metal deep in the earth's crust, get it out. You have sun and wind and soil and rain, do something with it, right? Plant crops, build houses, invent solar power, design computers, make music, create art, innovate new technology, fill the earth and subdue it. Like the word subdue suggests that this is an inherent, there's an inherent wildness to the world. Like, it, it is untamed. It's out of control. It's, des it's in desperate need of ruling. And so we saw last week in Genesis chapter 2, there's all this stuff about what, what the creation is like, all right, what the garden is like. And there's all this stuff about there's four different rivers, and one's going this direction, and one's going this direction, and one's going this direction. And then, and then we're told that there's onyx, and there's resin, and there's, and there's gold, and we read it, right? And we're like, why is that in there? Who cares? But the author of Genesis is saying that, that Eden is made up of, of raw materials. Like it is spilling over with pent-up potential. God is saying everything that you need to make a civilization is there. Your job is to cultivate it, to draw it out. I put you there to rule over it and to work it. And I love Tim Keller's definition of work that we saw last week. Work is rearranging the raw materials of a particular domain to draw out its potential for the flourishing of everyone. Like, this is the foundation of work that is going on all over planet Earth. 
even today. So like when a, a farmer takes soil and seed and, and water and rearranges it into a crop teeming with, with food for people to eat and, and enjoy, or when a builder takes a tree and a rock and other materials and rearranges it into a home for somebody to sleep in or play in or relax in or even more into a neighborhood. Or when a fashion designer takes fabric and metal and rearranges it into something with shape and beauty and functionality. Like when a musician, right, takes sound and tone and melody and rearranges it into something that is just heart-rendering and soul-filling. All of this is the work of cultivation. It's, it's drawing out something's potential. In fact, our word culture comes straight from this idea of cultivation. Good culture is the result of good people hard at work, rearranging the stuff of planet Earth, drawing out its potential. But we're not just called to any kind of work, right? Some work doesn't do this at all. Some work is destructive to the Earth or to the human brain, or to the economy, or to the family, or to the developing world. And so, no matter how lucrative it may be, this is not God's kind of work. We are commanded by God to move the world forward, not backward. We are called to make a garden-like world. We are, we are God's image bearers that can, can flourish and thrive. So, ultimately, as apprentices of Jesus learning his way to be human— we are invited to participate in a, in a new kind of kingdom, a kingdom where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, like where this glass wall between heaven and earth becomes so thin and so translucent that we barely notice it's there anymore. That's the dream, moving the world forward. And it always requires greater human flourishing. Like if we're moving it forward, people will flourish more. So we have to be very, very thoughtful about what we are doing. And the beauty is that, that we each play a role in God's world and in the movement forward. We, we, we move the world forward, not, not alone, but together. So I want to go back to the idea that if a farmer produces a crop, like we say, okay, a farmer produces a crop, or a graphic designer produces images, or a builder produces a house. As we all know, it's never that simple right? The, the ecosystem of humanity is complex and intricate. For example, did any of you get coffee from like an espresso place today? How, how many of you got coffee that was made like by a barista? Get them up there. Be proud. <laughs> All right. Uh, what'd you get? Grande latte. A grande latte. No flavor. No skinny no soy. It's a grande latte. Oh, this is, you're a simple man. I like that. Um, okay, so here's the deal. With the grande latte, there, there's actually a lot more going on than just a barista made it. Okay, yes, a barista made it in a coffee shop. Okay, but when you think about it, someone else built the espresso machine, right? And someone else built the, the coffee shop where your barista works. And somebody else started the coffee shop and they probably hired the barista. And somebody else made the logo for the coffee shop. And someone else fronted the money for it. And there was probably some banking involved. Not to mention the coffee itself, right? It came, probably came from the other side of the world. 
probably came from South America or Central America, and so somebody had to go there, and, and I'd, I'd build a relationship with a farmer, and then somebody else had to, to transport it all the way here, and then somebody had to roast it, and somebody had to grind it, which means somebody had to build a grinder, and here's my guess. I bet your barista didn't build the grinder. Uh, and so for each step, it, if you look at this, that you go, okay, yeah, I see it. But for each step, you could break it down further. I mean, you could just like keep breaking it down. I mean, think of all the stuff that was involved in growing the beans. Someone had to prepare the soil. And then someone had to plant. And then someone had to make sure everything, all the irrigation system was working right. And somebody had to fertilize. And somebody had to harvest. And each of those processes used various tools made in various shops. And in those shops that made those tools, there were other tools that were made in other shops. You see what I'm saying? You think about all the people that were involved just in the shipping of the coffee. People making ships and airplanes and, and semi-trucks and all that. And, and that's thousands and thousands more steps. You had, you had milk in your coffee. You guys, there was a cow, <laughs> and there was a farm, right? You're like, I get it. Yes, you get it. So all of this so you could buy your very simple manly grande latte. So here's, here's what I'm saying. The ecosystem of humanity is complex. John Mark Comer says it this way. He says, civilization isn't a wild west with every man for himself. It's a web of billions and billions of people all working together for a better world in a spirit of collaboration and interdependency, each one contributing something unique. So this week in my online groups, um, we talked, you know, we were talking about work we enjoy. And people could throw out work of all kinds, things that they're paid for, things they're not paid for. But I, in one of my groups... I have Shane and Sarah Lesher, and um, they're both pharmacists. And so they would always tell me, yeah, we're pharmacists. And I'm like, oh, sweet, you're a pharmacist. So, so I would always sort of envision, I'd go into like Walgreens or Rite Aid or whatever, and I always see the person behind the counter with the coat, and I'm like, oh, that's like Shane or Sarah. Come to find out this week, they, that's not really what they do. They are pharmacists, and this is like their, their degrees and all that, but what, what they mostly do is they, they run systems. They run like really important systems that equip others to then dispense medications efficiently. And so they help tons and tons and tons of people get the medications that they need for whatever the thing is they need it for. So here's what I'll tell you. What they do really matters. And God cares very much about it. It is sacred work. It is sacred work. And that, that brings me back to an idea that we kind of we touched on last week, but I want to develop a little bit more. There is no such thing as the sacred-secular divide. Many people live with the idea that some things are sacred or, or spiritual, and those are the things that matter deeply to God. And then there's other things that are secular or, or physical, and those things don't really matter to God, or at least not very much. And the problem is that by that definition, you guys, most of life is secular, right? Meaning most of life matters very little to God. I mean, the secular stuff, if you were to make a pie chart of how we spend our time and, 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 and we were to think about secular versus sacred, the sacred stuff is just a tiny little slice of the pie, right? Right? I mean, you're like, no, let's be real. It's... it's like being in a small group or doing evangelism or, or, or reading, going to church or reading the scriptures or prayer, what, what is that? Like maybe 5% of somebody's life, max? 
if they're like uber spiritual. The other 95% is, is spent doing things like working and sleeping and cleaning the house and taking the dog to the vet, doing laundry, paying bills, watching the game on TV, going out for dinner. Like, this is the stuff of everyday life. And it's so easy to feel like if we're just doing the stuff of everyday life that, in all the, that, that we're not changing the world, right? We're like, no, I'm just changing diapers. I'm just answering emails. I'm just tweaking Excel sheets. And it, and it can all start to feel kind of mundane and, and meaningless. Or maybe we actually have the opposite experience. Maybe we love our job. Like as a police officer or an IT specialist or a second grade teacher or whatever, we love it and we're actually really proud of what we do. But we feel bad that we like it so much because we think, oh, I love this. I, I feel like I was born for this, but I, but I feel guilty that I love it so much because it doesn't have anything directly to do with God or evangelism or things like heaven and hell. So we saw last week that there, there is actually no word for spiritual in the Hebrew language. The, the language of the first three quarters of the Bible that we call the Old Testament. Like if you look up the word spiritual in the Old Testament, it's just not there. Why? Because in Hebrew thinking, all of life is spiritual. Now when you get to the New Testament, the word spiritual is used by Paul, but in his writings it simply means like animated by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean physical things or secular things versus like spiritual things as in spiritual music versus secular music right or as in spiritual jobs like being a pastor which god loves and and secular jobs like you know medicine and and law or construction which god doesn't give a rip about <laughs> right like that's not what paul is that when he talks about things being spiritual that's not what he's talking about for paul every facet of life is spiritual, which just reflected the thinking of Jesus. Jesus did not buy into this whole sacred secular thing, not, not one bit. To him, the God that he called Father is as close as the air we breathe. To him, life is, is this integrated holistic experience where the sacred is all around us every moment. Like according to Jesus, God wants to be involved in every square inch of our lives. And you go, well, okay, so then when and why did Christians start dividing the world into sacred and secular? Why is it that, that most American Christians really do see the world in two categories? What, what in the world is happening that we see the world this way? Because it doesn't come from Jesus, so where does it come from? Well, as it goes all the way back to ancient Greek philosophers, right, like pre-Jesus. Probably the most famous one being Plato whose views have, have deeply impacted Western culture. And he used this dichotomy of spiritual world versus physical world, and eventually his views crept into the church. You go, well, how? Well, it took a while. It took quite a while, actually, because the earliest followers of Jesus were all Jewish, right? And so they were, they were sort of rooted in this Genesis-shaped worldview of planet Earth, um, where planet Earth, with all of its problems and issues, was still good at its core, and despite its imperfections, they, they, they saw it as home. The, the Jewish hope, and this is something that we have to get our minds around too, the Jewish hope wasn't to, to die and then go somewhere else. 
like for your body to biodegrade and then your soul to float off into some spiritual world called heaven up in the sky. The, the Jew, for Jewish people, the hope was resurrection. A bodily, flesh and blood, dirt under your fingernails, resurrection. For the creator to, to do his saving and, and healing work right here on earth. I mean, this was definitely the teaching of the rabbi that we follow, who most famously said, your kingdom come, come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this was the hope of Jesus and of Paul and of countless men and women who first called Jesus Lord. But here's what happened. As the church spread out away from Israel, across the Roman world, tons and tons of non-Jewish people started flooding into the church. People influenced by Greek philosophy. And over time, this thinking started to take root in the church. And by the Middle Ages, this thinking had become so dominant that the church was actually teaching that all work outside the church was secular, no matter how God-honoring and garden-like it was. And by then, the word calling could only refer to church work. The teaching was, like, if you want to do something that, that actually matters, something for the kingdom, then you only have a couple of choices. You can become a priest or a nun or a monk. The only other option for you is to, like, labor all day, every day at some secular job, a job that is meaningless and inconsequential for the things of the kingdom, and then when you get off work, then you can go serve God. Wow. Wow. And here's why it's so dangerous and tragic. That's still with us. That's still how people see the world. It's dangerous and tragic because the beautiful, all-encompassing, 24-7 kingdom of God on earth was reduced down to a few hundred people singing songs in a nice-looking building for an hour a week. Right? But after several hundred years of this teaching and, and thinking, there began a movement of courageous subversive radicals who began to return who began returning to the teachings of Jesus and of scripture about God and about his world and about what it means to be human and their goal was was to change the thinking and change the whole approach it was to reform the church and we called them what reformers yeah and so they they actually went to war with this sacred secular thinking and they came up with provocative and subversive, this provocative and subversive idea that they called the priesthood of all believers. Because they read stuff like 1 Peter, where it says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. So they would teach appalling things to people like, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. And so keep in mind, this is 16th century. There already were priests, and they, they were really important because they were the guys that ran the church, and they held a lot of power, and only they could mediate between sinful people and a holy God. But in boldness, the reformers, many former priests themselves, insisted, no, through Jesus and God's generous grace, we're all priests now. Like, you're a farmer, sure, and you're a priest. You're a blacksmith, sure. And you're a priest. And so if you, if you follow Jesus, then you are chosen. Right now, you are chosen and you are a royal priest. You work in IT. You're a priest. 
You're a, co- a community college student. You're a priest. You're a stay-at-home parent. You're a priest. You're a firefighter, a teacher, a barista. Now, barista are, uh, baristas are some of the most holy people. <laughs> right? If you're a barista, you are a priest. Meaning you, you play the role of mediating between the creator and creation. You are his representative on earth. You, you pass his blessing onto the world and, and to those that know him and to those that don't know him. You are called and what you do matters because what you do is your ministry. And for some, for a lot of people that have been in the church for a long time, there's pushback to that, that whole idea. Like, I'm in IT, right? I'm not in ministry. I'm a preschool teacher, I'm a plumber, I'm an electrician. Yeah, so? All, all that the word ministry means is service. Your ministry is your service. It's the part that you play, the way that you do your thing to work for a garden-like world. And when we divide the world into sacred and secular, we compartmentalize God. And what happens is God is effectively shut out of the bulk of our lives. And so if you live life with that thinking, over time, it's really easy to end up on two kind of polar opposite extremes. So some people, they think of themselves as followers of Jesus, but really only at church. Okay, so at church, they're all in. Like, they take notes on the sermon, they volunteer in ministries, they might even tithe, which is awesome. But when they go to work at the office they're pretty much like everybody else. They talk and act like everybody else. They overwork, they get burned out, and they get unhealthy like everybody else. If they're in business, they do business like everybody else. They chase the bottom line no matter what, no matter who it hurts, no matter what the outcome is. If they're in marketing, they sell stuff the same way as everybody else in the business. And you guys, this is true of of good people, really good people who love Jesus deeply. And many of them want, want to make, uh, you know, they want to make a, a lot of money and, and, and give it for the kingdom. The whole thing is, is I got I to gotta keep pushing forward with my business with this thing because I got to make a lot of money because I want to give it away. I got to give it to causes that really matter. So I'm going to give it to the church or I'm going to give it to church planter. I'm going to give it to some organization that's fighting poverty or, or injustice. And, and this is great. And, and I think Jesus is for that. But what they don't see is that what they do for a living is in itself redemptive and beautiful. Like, and here's the thing. Like, it doesn't matter if you make millions and give away 90% if you made that money doing something cheap or dishonest or ugly or sketchy or wasteful or harmful to the earth. Like, what you do for work matters just as much, if not more, than what you do with the money that you get from working. But the other extreme is, is those who think then that, that are really wrapped up in this sacred-secular divide, and so they think, well, my work then has to become overtly Christian. So if they're a musician, it has to be Christian music. If they're a teacher, it has to be a Christian school. If they start a business, it needs a fish and a cross in the logo. <laughs> right? And, and that's, that's, that's not all bad. It's not all bad. People can authentically be led by God towards some of that stuff. But just think about it. If every Christ follower on earth only ever worked in blatantly Christian jobs, we would be really isolated from the rest of the world really fast. 
Now, I want to say sometimes people will, will have a great job and they're, and they're doing something beautiful for the world, but they feel like it's not good enough. And so they quit their job and they, they work for a nonprofit or a church because they want to do something that they feel like really matters. And that's, that's not bad. Some work does have greater impact than other work. I mean, let's be honest, it does. What's sad is when people think to really serve Jesus, they have to work in a church or in a nonprofit. Because remember, like the, the ecosystem of humanity is intricate and it's complex. So this morning I'm, I'm preaching a, a sermon, a really good sermon. And you guys, I wrote it, I wrote it on a laptop. And I'm using my tablet to guide me through it right now. And, and if you're in the back, you can hear me because I have an amazing voice, but also because I have a mic, right? And so that involves a soundboard and it involves speakers and a really good looking dude in the back running the soundboard, Johnny. So... That stuff, it, it all works together. And here's what I'm saying. The whose job is more important game gets really old really fast. We need to remember that work by itself for its own sake is good. I mean, let's say you're an IT specialist at a cell phone company and, and you can, like somehow you can repurpose your skill set to serve at a nonprofit, and you could play a part in fighting injustice or world hunger or, or using your skills to just help people come to Jesus. You, you know what? That is stinking awesome. And if you can do that, you should do that. As long as you know that just being an IT person is enough. What you're already doing matters. I mean, you think about it. You make it possible along with the many other people who work at your company, for people to pick up a phone and just call the people that they love anywhere in the world, any time of day. That, like that is moving the world forward. That is garden-like work. You play a role in that. What you do is a gift for the rest of us. Now, I think about my ability to talk to my son in Haiti every week, sometimes on the phone, sometimes through various screens, like, if you play a role in those kinds of fields, man, I am so grateful to you. That's huge. And there, there might be some of you feeling a little bit of pushback right now, like, yeah, I, that's cool, I hear you, but aren't my ultimate marching orders from Jesus to make disciples? Not like troubleshoot IT problems for Comcast? Well, that's true, that's our ultimate call. But, but there's overlap between the Genesis 1 cultural mandate and the call of Jesus to, to make disciples of all nations. I mean, we're called to make culture and to make disciples. The, the original calling is to rule over the earth, to make culture. The second calling is to go and make disciples who can then partner with God and use their lives to do garden-like work too. Who can then use their lives to make culture Two, two mandates that work in harmony with each other. So when we help people put their faith in Jesus, it isn't just so that they can receive forgiveness and then go to heaven one day when they die. It's also so that they can begin seeing the world as God does and begin giving their lives to garden-like work. So like if you're an IT person and you go to work tomorrow morning, you have not one, 
but two different callings. The first is to just be the best IT person you can be. Because as you do, you're moving the world forward toward human flourishing. But you are also called to make disciples, to talk about Jesus to those that are open and would listen, and to live in such a way that people ask questions, not just about IT, but hopefully along the way about life, about meaning and purpose and peace and community and joy and hope, and why your life looks a little bit different from other people that they've met before. And hopefully through that, along the way in your life, you will get get to invite people to become disciples of Jesus and then to follow him into the work of culture making that aligns with who they are. The new calling to make disciples does not negate the original calling to make culture. This is a both-and deal. Now, in churches that many of us have attended, there's like a much bigger focus on making disciples than making culture. Yes? And, and that's not, like, horrible. That, like, I, making disciples, it should be front and center. All I'm saying is that we, we need to be aware that we're called by God to do both. And ultimately, what I'm saying is that spiritual life is not a compartment. We are so predisposed in Western culture to think of life in compartments. Like, every part of our life is just sort of its own separate category. Years ago, I showed a, a visual of, of this that looked like, looks like this looks like a pie, right? So <laughs> this, is, this is how many of us tend to think about life, right? Each, each part of life takes up a slice of the pie, right? You've got marriage and then parenting and then school and job, time with friends. These are just random things I threw on there. And <laughs> time with friends and then there's, there's fantasy football, <laughs> which, Keller, is the slice on that big enough even? <laughs> no, I, I, I don't think it is. Are you winning so far? You're not checking in church, are you? Okay, good. So, so if this was real life, right, this is way too simple. We'd have to add in all kinds of stuff into this pie, right? There's brushing your teeth, I hope. Uh, there's making dinner. There's grocery shopping. There's mowing the lawn. There's walking the dog. There's doing your taxes. There's getting your oil changed, updating your computer and your phone. There's getting your furnace serviced. You guys are all on top of that, right? It's about to get cold. And it just, it goes on and on. So what happens is, though, that we, we see spirituality as a slice of the pie, and it starts to get squeezed because for many of us, we don't have, as we're trying to work all the slices in there, there's just not enough room left over. And so for many of us, we're like, yeah, I really do want my relationship with Jesus to, to take up a bigger portion of the pie, to be more robust, but we just can't seem to work it in to our already overcrowded life. And it's this constant battle, if we're, if we're serious about following Jesus, to try to make spirituality a bigger slice. But according to Scripture and Jesus and Paul, the, this whole pie chart is, is not really a very helpful paradigm at all. At least if you think of spirituality as like one slice of it. I mean, I would say that, that Jesus thought of, of life, and we've talked about this before, as more of like a bike wheel, right? So there are many, many facets of life, and there are all the things that we'd put in the pie chart, but instead of God being a slice of the pie, it's like God is the hub that is right at the center, and every spoke or every aspect of life needs to connect to it. 
And when you think about a bicycle, like what, what happens if the spokes are not connecting to the hub in the center? Well, without it, the whole thing, if you try to ride on that, it's just going to cave really fast. It needs that hub in the center, and it needs every spoke to be connected to it. So if we're seeing life as Jesus saw it, it looks a whole lot more like a bike wheel than a pie, right? God is the hub at the center, and everything is connected to him. And in real life, there's a whole lot of spokes, more than, more than we can really even put on there, right? But when it comes to our work, whether it is paid or unpaid, whatever it is we do with the bulk of our life to move the world forward, we do it as a follower of Jesus because there's no compartments. Everything matters to God. And so the way of Jesus is free to permeate and shape every facet of life. And, and maybe that means that you'll leverage your small business to work for justice. Maybe it means that you'll hire people that are, that are in need, maybe from the mission or whatever, and, or give away half of your profits to like low-income school program, and, and you'll make sure that your, your product is eco-friendly. Or, or, maybe you just show up to your job as an accountant, and you do your job really freaking well, and the world will be better, and people around you will flourish more because of what you do. Like every day when you show up for work, you will embody to everybody that you encounter the way of Jesus so that your coworkers and your boss and your clients will get a glimpse of the kingdom of God and what Jesus is all about. And over time, maybe they'll be interested in learning more. You need to know, like, that's enough. And it's beautiful. And some of you might be like listening to this and, and rethinking your job. Because maybe you've felt unsettled recently. You know, you look at what you do and you go, I don't, I don't even believe in what I do. I mean, I think there's something about this whole thing and the product and the way that we do this or the way that our company operates that is inconsistent with the way of Jesus, just like foundationally. Well, then you probably need to start looking for a new job. And I just want to say, have at it. You should do that. Ask God to guide you in it. But for most of you, your, your job isn't in that category at all. Like, of course, any human corporation you work for, there's going to be some sin and there's going to be some stuff that isn't quite right. But for you, it's just you, you need to invite Jesus to be a part of, of what you do for work. Why? Because we live in a world with no compartments. We live in a world where God is concerned about every detail. Again, ministry just means serving. You guys, we're all in ministry. We're all serving. Some people like me, we serve inside the church, which is great. The vast majority of you are going to serve outside the church as a firefighter or an architect or a Google tech or a ski instructor or a barista or a radiologist. Right? You may be serving outside the church, but here's the thing. You are not serving outside the kingdom. What you're doing is spiritual and it matters to God. So your job or your career or parenting or great-grandparenting, whatever it is that you do with the bulk of your service in this world these days, it isn't something that is outside of Jesus' calling on your life. It's actually right at the center of it. So give it your all, enjoy the fruit of it, and then just allow yourself to feel God's pleasure over you. Amen? Amen. Father in heaven,
I thank you that you care about our lives. I thank you that you give us really meaningful stuff to do. And I thank you for the joy that we feel over that as we move the world forward in the various ways that we do. God, would you help us to, to, to get over this thing that has been deeply ingrained in us to divide the world into spiritual and secular, sacred and, and physical, but to look at the world as it's something that you care very much about, every single part of it, every relationship, everything that we do. You are as close to us as the air that we breathe. And you care what we do with the bulk of our lives because you care about everything. So God, would you help us in, in the things that we spend most of our time working toward, the places that we're trying to move the world forward? God, would you help us to experience your presence with us, your guiding hand, and would you help us to do it in a way that, that makes this world better, that, that increases human flourishing? Whether it's an IT job or being a police officer or, or whatever it is, God, would you use us? Would you use us in the everyday things that we do? Amen.